Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, Roger, a carefully crafted statement from Buckingham Palace after the Harry and Meghan interview. Piers Morgan then quits ITV's Good Morning Britain and Labour's Holly Lynch, who coordinated, if you remember, a letter from 72 female MPs in support of Meghan back in 2019, now suggests that legislation may ultimately be needed to make the press more responsible for its coverage of high-profile women. Well, what do you think of that? We'll discuss throughout the programme. Meanwhile, the EU-UK spat over vaccines, which has ramped up again after the European Council President Charles Michel accused the UK of blocking exports of COVID-19 jabs, saying he's shocked by the move. But the blog post has drawn a sharp rebuke from the government here, who are vehemently denying it. Bloomberg sources tell us that the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has written a letter to the EU saying that the claim is completely false. Right, well, let's talk to Manira Wilson, MP for Twickenham and Liberal Democrat spokesperson for health. Manira, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. Uh, first of all, let's talk about that spat between the EU and the UK on all this. Uh, it does seem to be part of an ongoing dispute about vaccines between Brussels and London. Who's in the right? Uh, I, I have no idea, but what I would say is vaccine nationalism does nobody any favours. The effectiveness of the COVID, COVID vaccines depends on countries working together. We all know that nobody's safe till we're all safe. So I would just urge all sides to, uh, you know, uh, work together to find a resolution with calm heads as soon as possible. That we can only solve these global problems by countries working together, not having these sorts of spats. Hmm, but surely the resolution is actually to share some of the doses, which I don't believe yep. the UK has done yet. How far do you think that our citizens should have priority when thinking about vaccinations? Well, the Liberal Democrats have been very, very clear that actually uh, we should be sh- dose sharing uh, already. Uh, so in parallel with vaccinating our own population, we should be sharing um, some of our vaccine doses with some of the world's poorest countries, which are struggling to get access to vaccine because yes money has been put into schemes such as COVAX but the reality is because all the biggest richest countries have bought up all the initial doses actually there isn't enough manufacturing capacity globally to be providing vaccines uh, to some of those other poorer countries so we should be in parallel with vaccinating our own population which is obviously uh, going very well at the moment thanks to the fantastic work of, of the NHS and volunteers on the ground 
we should already be starting in parallel to share some of those vaccine doses with other countries because we, we've seen the impact of variants coming in from other countries and that, that risk can be cut down by widespread vaccination globally. Well, Maniri, I noticed you, you emphasise in parallel, but inevitably there are priorities and it's only reasonable, I guess, that our own taxpayers, our own citizens should have priority as far as UK politicians are concerned in dealing with vaccines. Yes, well, I mean, we know there's going to be a massive surge of supply uh, next week. We've been told that uh, very clearly on numerous occasions uh, by ministers. We've we've vaccinated uh, the most vulnerable groups. Now, obviously, the, everybody is potentially susceptible to the virus, and there are things like long COVID. But we have now uh, given a, at least a first shot, and for many now a second shot, uh, among our most vulnerable groups. Therefore, I think it is a responsible thing to do if we want to start getting back to normality uh, and being able to travel again and and not have the fear of these uh, new variants coming in to start to help that global vaccination effort. Yeah, but teachers haven't been vaccinated, for example. And the whole point is we're we're still in lockdown, essentially, other than schools reopening now. And those teachers haven't had had vaccines. And I've been arguing for some time and I've been arguing for some time that that teachers and uh, indeed school staff should have been uh, as part of the priority group. So it's, it's important in terms of keeping them safe, too. All right, well, let's talk about the other aspect of this, which is what it says, I suppose, about relations between London and Brussels. Uh, It's not just the vaccine. There's been a lot of issues, of course, about red tape going across the channel. The the Northern Ireland issue, of course, the protocol there, very much a live and potential problem for the United Kingdom. What's the way forward to try and get relations between London and Brussels back onto a more even keel? Well, I mean, the Northern Ireland issue is obviously now a symptom of what was a a very bad deal, which is why we uh, in the Liberal Democrats opposed it. I mean, in terms of going forward, uh, as somebody who is pro-European, but except that Brexit's happened, we've left the European Union, that was the the, the will of the British people. Uh, It is the UK government's responsibility now to focus on building uh, a positive and strong working relationship. And I would urge the EU to do the same. I don't think... Uh, it's particularly edifying or helpful to either party to have these these ongoing spats. We need to to sit down calmly around the table and try to work through some of these issues, Uh, and particularly uh, for the benefit of British businesses. I mean, I know from talking to businesses in my own constituency, I was speaking to a chocolatier last week who's not been able to export a single bar of chocolate to the European Union since the 1st of January. He normally exports a quarter of a million pounds worth per year. Now, there's all sorts of unanswered questions, uh, and we know the services sector, which is so important for London, which is where my constituency is, is is, is incredibly important. There's a lot more negotiation still to go. Therefore, uh, we need to, to start to build those positive relationships so that we can move forward uh, for the benefit of British business and British mm-hmm. citizens. Is there enough money, in your view, to switching tack to pay the NHS staff the 12.5% that the RCN, the Royal College of Nursing, is calling for, in your view? Well, what I'm very clear about, and we've seen it this morning, that some £37 billion has been spent on a test and trace system, which is apparently having uh, a marginal impact on the spread of coronavirus. That's a 150% increase almost since the initial budget that was set aside for test and trace, yet ministers are saying they can only afford 1% for NHS 
staff, that shows to me uh, a staggering level of both incompetence but also uh, a huge unfairness in how we're treating uh, the heroes who kept us and our loved ones safe throughout uh, this crisis. So I would urge the government to think again um, and look at what a, a decent pay rise for our NHS workforce well, what do you think a decent pay rise would be? I mean, can you put a figure on it? 12.5% is what the uh, Royal College of Nurses is calling for. Many people think that's just unrealistic. Well, we've said it should be an above real terms uh, increase. There's an independent salary review body that should be looking at this. The government committed in legislation to 2.1% last year that uh, we voted in favour of. So uh, that should be a minimum starting point. And then there needs to, to be a negotiation through the independent review body uh, to, to look at what final settlement should be. Okay, so that on NHS pay. Um, what is your reaction to the Palace statement about um, the Meghan and Harry interview affair? Um, what do you make of of that um, of that uh, Palace statement that came out just yesterday afternoon? Well, look, I mean, this is there's obviously uh, you know it's a sad situation for for and a difficult family dispute going on. Clearly, there are big issues that have been raised around race and mental health. Uh, we should always take uh, those sorts of uh, allegations in terms of racism, but also anybody who's suggesting that they've got mental health issues who are seeking help, we should take those sorts of uh, claims very, very seriously and not be brushing them aside. Uh, so, uh, you know, I very much hope that... Uh, you know, some of these allegations will be looked into and that Megan is now getting the help that she needs because this is a, a but, serious problem in our society. But it's wider than that, isn't it, Manira? Because it, we're, we're talking about uh, a situation where, for example, Harry and Megan talked about the, the media problem in the UK and most people think there there is a problem in, in that way. They've alleged racism, institutional racism, uh, also in the royal family. Um, Holly Lynch, uh, Labour MP, coordinated a letter from 72 female MPs back in 2019 in support of Megan. She's now saying legislation may ultimately be needed to make the take, press take responsibility. Do you agree? Would you support that? Well, I mean, the, the, in terms of press regulation, it's something, I mean, we've been uh, pressing for for some time. I mean, I, I do think there are problems to do with parts of the press in terms of their attitude towards race. It's very clear you only need to look at some of our tabloid press on a you know, weekly, if not daily basis, in terms of how uh, you know, people from other countries and asylum seekers and uh, people of colour can be uh, vilified. So, uh, you know, I, I, w I would welcome that being looked at. I, I'm not sure, I'm not, I haven't seen the letter that Holly Lynch is talking about and I don't know what they're proposing in terms of legislation. So it's, it's very difficult for me to comment on, on any detail of that. In terms of understanding where Megan is coming from, Manira, have you suffered from racism in the UK or as a female MP in Parliament? Well, I mean, I'm. It's very difficult for me to know if I've uh, suffered racism that's sort of below the radar. I've, I've not seen. I've not personally uh, faced uh, racism in any significant way that's been direct into my face um i'm you know i realize i'm incredibly privileged and lucky in that situation and that is not the case 
for many, many people from ethnic minorities, particularly those in public life and, and people who are just doing ordinary everyday jobs, that, that there is a, a, a real problem and that needs to be tackled. Uh, I think it is often uh, as well related to poverty and inequality that that, that needs to be uh, tackled. But I, I realise I'm in a very privileged position given the background that I've had, that I've, I, it's not something I've, I've really sensed. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start, Caroline, with Test and Trace. Yes, the scheme, uh, Test and Trace, a cross-party group of MPs saying that there's no clear evidence that this £22 billion programme has actually helped reduce coronavirus infection levels. The government has given the NHS programme, though, a further £15 billion, taking its total bill to £37 billion over two years. Now, the chair of that group of MPs Meg Hillier says that the jury is still out on a number of issues. The Department of Health and Social Care certainly justified the, the huge cost partly on the basis that it would avoid lockdown. Clearly, that didn't happen. You can't pin all of that on test and trace because clearly there was a releasing of lockdown restrictions and it's difficult to disaggregate at this point which led to what. So the Public Accounts Committee is urging ministers to justify spending that much money, saying that British taxpayers can't simply be treated like an ATM machine. Now let's turn to UK-Sino relations, and the Chinese Foreign Ministry has summoned the British ambassador after she posted an article on WeChat defending recent international media coverage on China. The Chinese ministry has condemned the article as confusing, defamation with critical news reporting, but the diplomat tweeted that she stood by her Chinese-language piece. WeChat restricted the sharing of the article hours after its original publication on the embassy's official account. And meanwhile, a bit closer to home in Scotland, the Deputy First Minister John Swinney is uh, today facing a vote of no confidence, but it already looks likely to fail with the Scottish Greens saying that they would not support it. The Scottish Conservatives tabled the motion two weeks ago in the hope that Swinney would release government legal advice before it conceded the judicial review brought by Alex Salmond. Now, despite some documents being released, it hasn't satisfied the Tories with the vote going ahead regardless. Right, now let's uh, pick up on some of those threads about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, who continue to dominate headlines today following their interview with Oprah Winfrey. Now, late yesterday, Buckingham Palace said the... Excuse me, the racism allegations made are concerning and being taken very seriously. In statement, the palace said recollections may vary, but the matters will be addressed privately. Now, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, has called for an investigation. Yesterday, we spoke to the Conservative MP, Alexander Stafford, who echoed that sentiment. First of all, all racism is completely abhorrent. We need to find out, obviously, what the validity of those claims are. But what I'd say is the Queen does an amazing job, head of the Commonwealth, and I don't think that we need to really put the pressure on her when her husband is in the hospital. But any claims of that should be looked into and they should be investigated. 
So the Conservative MP Alexander Stafford sort of veering away what the la- from what the line has been from most Conservatives, which, um, you know, is simply to condemn racism. The question really now is, will this palace statement be enough actually to stymie critics? Joining us now to discuss this Bloomberg opinions, Therese Raphael. Therese, hard to understate, you know, just how fraught now um, this all is. Is this statement of what some 61 words from Buckingham Palace going to be enough? Yeah, it is so fraught, as you say. I think, you know, public opinion is clearly very divided. I mean, let's leave out opinion in America where uh, the polls showed um, uh, most people sided quite uh, strongly with Harry and Meghan uh, and felt that the case they put forward did suggest that there was racist behavior from within the palace. But in Britain, it's a very different story. There's huge support with the, for the Queen. There's robust support for the monarchy generally, but it also breaks down um, by age. So younger people tend to be more sympathetic to, um, to Meghan and Harry than older people. So with that as a backdrop, you know, for for government ministers and the opposition, it does create an issue. I mean, this is not, um, you know, this is not akin to previous scandals or even uh, Prince Andrew's, uh, the allegations of, of Prince Andrew's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein and what he knew. This is about an issue that is so core to public debate today. And the monarchy is a public fund, publicly funded, you know, major institution. And really, you know, what many people in the world know about Britain, they know uh, you know, it, the, the first thing they, they will think of is, is the queen and the monarchy. So this, this tends to sort of entangle um, both, uh, you know, a, a, an issue that the palace would like to keep as a private family matter and much broader societal debates. And um, for that reason, I don't think it goes away. I think people will want to have some sort of assurance that it was, as the statement says, taken very seriously. The, uh, I think the key wording that recollections vary uh, gives us a, a, a hint of where the the, the Buckingham Palace would like to go on this and sort of agree to disagree over what was said and and uh, and, and and hope that uh, some reassurances that uh, that that racism is taken seriously will be enough. But it's you know hard to see this going away uh, quickly and you know ultimately it may fall to a younger generation of royals and Harry's brother William to try to put things right. I, I suppose the, the, the two accusations that hang most heavy, one is obviously the racism, the, the racist comment that, that, that was was said, at least according to Harry and Meghan, and the other one is the, the lack of sympathy and the following almost the Diana pattern in terms of not taking mental health issues and welfare seriously enough. I mean, the, the royal family as an institution, can they move in some meaningful way to say, yes, we are taking those items seriously? Well, they certainly have a, a, you know, one of the world's, you know, biggest bully pulpits. So they they can move um, in in various ways. I mean, some of the confusion is that you know the royal family, it's a family. It's uh, we talk talk about the firm, which tends to refer to sort of the eight senior members of the royal family. It's also an institution with an HR department and thousands of employees that serve the public facing business of the monarchy. And, you know, this issue kind of elides all of those things. And it's become, you know, it's become quite fraught in in sort of who bears responsibility for you know, asserting that, um, you know, for atoning for 
for any, uh, you know, any uh, racist behavior, for investigating it. And so I think, you know, all sides of the, the monarchy, the family, the firm, the, the institution, kind of all need to be on the same page here. But what also complicates it is, you know, not all of the allegations that were put forward in that interview are particularly, you know, convincing or at least as convincing as others. So, you know, when, when Megan, um, you know, talked uh, quite a bit about Archie not receiving the print title, uh, many pushed back and said, well, you know, under convention, he's, he's not expected, he's not due to have that title until, uh, say, Charles assumes the throne. So once you begin to unpick the various allegations, and you can sort of cast doubt on some of them, that has, you know, that, that sort of throws into question um, perhaps some of the broader case in the minds of, of people who are royal supporters, and that's created a lot of debate about, you know, how, how seriously to take this. But I think, um, you know, there's no question that uh, that they cannot ignore it, that, you know, the, the interview had a huge effect. And um, I don't think that a simple statement that it's going to be handled privately but taken seriously is going to be quite enough. Yeah, absolutely. I think that idea of kind of privacy um, is a very tricky one. And of course, one must add the fact that William, um, Catherine and Harry, in fact, in their public lives, did focus on mental health and on speaking regularly about mental health. It was sort of one of the keys to sort of outreach to young people in the UK. So I think it's sort of quite relevant in that sphere also. But look, this, um, you know, the, the issues around uh, the royal family, I think, will continue for some time and no doubt um, will be problematic also politically. But there's another big row that remains um, for Britain, which is kind of battling fires, it seems, on so many fronts. I think that's the other sort of shocking thing at the moment. And that is the fight between the UK and the EU. Now, the pushback was fairly firm, um, Therese, around the fact that the UK is, um, you know, not sharing vaccines, or that was the accusation from the EU, but that the UK has rebuffed that really firmly. How do you see that that fight? Yeah, it was a strange statement from, from Charles Michel, the council president, who, you know, wrote in a newsletter that, um, that the UK had a, you know, export ban, um, which isn't the case. And he, you know, it, it I think it, it, Follows on, um, you know, statements from Ursula von der Leyen, where she she used a sort of de facto export ban. And, I mean, the fact is that AstraZeneca's manufacturing model is very dis- is a decentralized one, um, whereas um, Pfizer. BioNTech's uh, vaccine is has quite centralized manufacturing, and therefore, you know, you would expect the EU to be an export hub for that. Um, but what the EU has is, of course, the contracts that um, that the UK had with with um, Oxford uh, before it linked up with AstraZeneca, that also um, ensured that that UK that the UK would be. Uh, served first in in those vaccines. And um, that's very different from what the U.S. has, which is, you know, an executive order that um, that the American market is is served first. So there are a lot of issues that 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 kind of get compounded in that one statement. But I think the bigger picture here is that there is just so much friction between the EU and the UK. And we also saw it um, on Northern Ireland, where uh, Britain has unilaterally said it will extend the grace period for checks uh, for uh, foods going to uh, and goods going into um, Northern Ireland at the Irish Sea. And uh, and the European Commission is, is launching legal 
action. So I think we're seeing a relationship that is far from settled. Um, and every issue of contention seems to blow up into this major diplomatic, you know, row. And uh, it will be interesting to see how Boris Johnson and the commission uh, try to calm that down, because, you know, you can just, you know, you can just see how many areas this is going to uh, affect relations and trade and indeed, you know, financial services and the rest of it. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.